Hey, everybody. I'm Alexa. And I'm Cherish. And welcome back to Murder in the Mountains. So we took a week off because the stomach bug hit our house. It was Beckett's first stomach bug, and it was terrible. So Harris didn't want to come over and get the cooties and keep spreading them back and forth, understandably. So we took the week off instead of compromising the audio integrity of the show and doing it via Zoom. So that's that. Um, Cherish, would you also like to share what today is not? <laughs> so I woke up this morning. Actually, let me just back up a little bit. Last night. I text Ryan and I was like, hey, do you have anything planned for Alexa's birthday? Um, if you do, I'll be happy to keep the kids. I can pick Peyton up from school. I'll come watch Beckett. Like, whatever, just let me know. And Ryan very nonchalantly was like, eh, not yet, but I'll let, I'll keep it in mind. So this morning I woke up. We were texting about recording today. And I was like, oh, by the way, happy freaking birthday. And guess what today is not. It's not Alexa's birthday. Facebook lie. I think it somehow linked to another Facebook page or something. So it said today was my birthday. Also, like six years um, ahead or five years. Um, but and she was not the only one who wished me happy birthday. But I told her to mark her calendar for in about six weeks when my actual birthday is. But that explains why Ryan was like, I mean. So I asked him, I said, so Cherish asked you about my birthday? He said, yeah, just thought that she was planning way to <laughs> even think about it. Also told Peyton on the way to school this morning that today was Alexa's birthday to make sure to tell her happy birthday. So Peyton got in the car and was like, what are we doing for your birthday today? I said, it's not my birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. It's very funny. Uh, but it's not my birthday. So... We will just jump in on that note. Sounds good to me. To today's case. This week's case takes place in Richmond, Virginia. It was New Year's Day 2006, and the Harvey family was preparing to have a chili dinner with some friends. Which sounds delicious, because I love me a good chili. But no black beans and greens on New Year's no, Day. collard greens. Yeah. Yeah, and black-eyed peas. Yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Black beans and greens. <laughs> there we go. No. Chili instead, okay. which I would prefer. The Harvey family consisted of 49-year-old Brian, who was the husband and father, 39-year-old Catherine, who was the wife and mother, and two girls, 9-year-old Stella and 3-year-old Ruby. Brian was somewhat of a local celebrity as a singer-songwriter for an indie band called House of Freaks. He even played a show on New Year's Eve night because he just loved music. It wasn't his full-time job. It was just a hobby, but one that he was very passionate about. Catherine owned a local toy store called World of Mirth, and she was a loved and respected member of the community. So New Year's Day morning started off as usual. The Harveys woke up early to prepare for their lunchtime get-together, and Brian went out to grab the newspaper. He walked back into the house and he did not lock the door behind him. A lot of people don't keep their door locked in that area because it was a safe part of town, so it didn't really phase him to do so. As Catherine was in the kitchen baking cookies for her guests, she heard people talking in the living room. I personally hate it when guests show up early because I'm hardly ever ready, like, on time. But, so, don't show up early. 
I'm not ready for you. Come a little late. You or know? if you're going to show up early, be prepared to help. One yeah, of the two. One of the two. Don't just sit there and watch me. But Catherine walked into the living room to greet her early guests. Horror must have absolutely flooded Catherine when she realized it wasn't guests in her living room. It was two men that she had never seen before. Men that literally just walked into her home without forced entry because the door was unlocked. Right. The men immediately moved Brian, Catherine, and Ruby into the basement playroom. Stella was at a sleepover but was expected to be dropped off any minute. So the men obviously didn't see her then. She moved her kids. No, the men moved the kids and her and the husband into the basement. Oh, I missed that yes. part. Yes, sorry. Yep. They tied the family up with electrical tape and began tearing the house apart looking for anything they could steal. In the middle of their ransacking, there was a knock on the door. Catherine and Brian knew it was probably Stella being dropped off. One of the men untied Catherine and told her that if she said anything about what was going on, that they would kill Brian and Ruby. So she's left with the toughest choice, like she could refuse to answer the door and risk Brian and Ruby getting killed, or maybe if she does what they say, there's a chance that they'll get let go. So making what was probably the worst decision of her life, and the hardest decision of her life, Catherine decided to obey her captors and answer the door. It was, in fact, nine-year-old Stella, and before Catherine could even say anything, Stella pushed past her and made her way straight to the playroom, which is where her and her sister spent the majority of their time. Stella's friend tried to follow her in, but Catherine blocked her from getting into the house. Her mom, the little girl's mom, thought that was definitely strange because Catherine wasn't normally like that. When she asked her if she was okay, Catherine told her that she wasn't feeling well and immediately closed the door to end the conversation. So where she'd normally be like, yeah, come on in, we're having friends over, come hang out. She was like, er, go away, you're not coming in. By the time Catherine got back to the basement, Stella had already been tied up. Imagine this little girl's terror, like, or all of theirs, but especially Stella, because she literally just got back from a sleepover, made her way to her favorite room in the house, which just happened to be where the captors were holding her family. And got snatched. Yes. But what came next was unthinkable. Once Catherine was restrained again, the men, without any warning at all, began murdering the Harvey family one by one. Using a knife he had taken from the Harvey's kitchen, the man who seemed to be in charge began slitting the victim's throats. I wasn't able to find exactly who went first. I saw that the parents saw the kids, the kids saw the parents, so don't know, but either way, it's equally terrifying. The man then told his partner that they weren't dying fast enough for his liking, so he grabbed a hammer and beat them to death. Mm. The pair then took Catherine's wedding ring off her finger, grabbed a DVD player, Catherine's fresh-baked cookies, and set the home on fire to cover up the evidence and fled the scene. Why those three things? I don't know. Maybe that's just all they could grab and... Hungry and wanted a memento? I guess so. That's weird to me. So, just to recap, they murdered four people, including two little girls, for a wedding ring, DVD player, and cookies. That's it. Not long after, Johnny Hot, Brian's good friend and former bandmate, arrived for the party. 
When he opened the front door, smoke came pouring out and he could smell something burning. He immediately called 911 and that was when paramedics arrived and found the bodies of Brian, Catherine, Stella, and Ruby Harvey still bound. Autopsies revealed that both Brian and Catherine died from blunt force trauma to the head. Stella died from a combination of blunt force trauma and smoke inhalation, which means she was alive to the very end and potentially saw everything that happened. Three-year-old Ruby died from stab wounds to her neck and back. Police were absolutely shook. This wasn't just a robbery gone wrong. It was a full-blown family massacre. They were watching the home. They saw Brian grab the newspaper and walk back inside. They knew that people were home. So it wasn't like a, maybe nobody's home. We can get in and steal some things. They knew. Yeah, he had just walked out. Despite the horrific nature of the crime, there was little evidence, so police reached out to the public for help. Five days later, on January 6, 2006, a woman named LaToya Polly called the police asking for them to check on her friend Ashley Baskerville. She hadn't heard from her in a few days, and she thought that Ashley's boyfriend and his uncle were responsible for the murder of the Harvey family. She went further and said that there was proof of this at her home because the men left evidence of the crime there. The men's names were Ray Dandridge and Ricky Gray. Did she say what they had left? She did not. Ugh, frustrating. So who exactly are these men? Ricky Javon Gray was born on March 9, 1977, and Ray Joseph Dandridge was born on January 24, 1977. Despite the fact that they were the same age, Ricky is actually Ray's uncle. I mean, I was somebody's aunt that was older than me by marriage, so my it's weird, but... Yeah, my nephew's uncle is the same age as him. Yeah. Awesome. So, it happens. The pair grew up together as more like brothers than uncle and nephew. According to Ronald Wilson, Ray's father, the boys, quote, raised hell together. Anytime the two got together, they got in trouble. He said one didn't influence the other. They just both fed off each other. As teens, neither boy completed high school, but instead started life as career criminals. In October 1995, both Ricky and Ray were caught robbing two Georgetown University students with a gun. They took a pager, sunglasses, and one dollar from the boys. Why? I mean, I guess you never know what somebody has on them when you rob them, so you just take what you're going to get. Makes sense, I guess, but... Unless you see, like, a Rolex on them. You know, like, unless you see, like, what you're going after. I feel like the risk to reward there is not uh, very great. They haven't gotten high return, it appears. Yeah. As a result, Ray Dangdridge was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but for some reason, Ricky Gray was only sentenced to four and was released after three. That's because Ricky told. The first to talk, it's a better deal. I'm snitches sure, get honestly. stitches. However, soon after his release, he was arrested again, this time on drug charges. In 2000, he went to trial for abduction charges, but was acquitted. No big deal. Did they say, did you figure out who or... or? No. Okay. She gave shifty eyes, like... Hmm. Hmm. During his life of crime, Ricky Gray managed to find love. You know, you gotta make time for things that matter. 
Treva Terrell and Ricky met during one of those times where he actually wasn't in jail. Treva had a criminal record as well. While she was an inmate in 2002, Treva was victim of sexual assault by one of the police officers that ran the work release program she was in. She testified that she complied with his sexual demands in order to stay in the work release program. Once she was out, she moved with her family to a safer part of town. When Ricky and Treva got married, he moved in with her and she helped him get back on his feet. He enrolled in school to be an electrician and then began working at the same telemarketing company as Treva. On October 26, 2005, 28-year-old Ray was released from prison after serving his 10 years from armed robbery. So he's been in prison since he was 18 and just got released. Once he was released, he moved in with his uncle Ricky and his wife of six months, 35-year-old Treva. By all accounts, their relationship was not a good one. Treva's parents said that they fought bitterly, and just a week after Ray moved into the home owned by Treva's parents, her badly beaten body was found in a shallow grave in Washington, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh. So literally, uncle and nephew have just been reunited after a prison stint, and a week later, the body of Treva was found. Mm. Don't like it. Despite the fact that she had clearly been beaten and that Ricky had claw marks on his arm when police interrogated him, police didn't launch a formal homicide investigation and just kind of let it go. Just like, oh, I think she overdosed in a shallow grave. She buried and beat herself. herself up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. A week after Trayvon's murder, her parents evicted Ricky and Ray because the home belonged to them. Ray went to live with his father in West Philadelphia, and Ricky went to live with his grandmother in Arlington, Virginia. But you can't keep these two apart for long. By Christmas Day 2005, the pair was back together. Ray went to Virginia to be with Ricky. Just a week later, Ricky and Ray attacked 26-year-old Ryan Carey in front of his parents' house. They proceeded to beat him and stab him in the chest, neck, and arms. Luckily, he escaped, and he was able to make it to his parents' home, like crawl to the front door, completely covered in blood. His father called 911, and Ryan was taken to the hospital where he was stabilized. He spent two months in a coma and lost use of his right arm, but he survived. These men are bold. Uh, yeah, bold. like broad daylight right in front of somebody else's home. Broad daylight, no people are home. A week after you get out of prison, the wife winds up murdered. Just all very, you know, and they're getting away with it, so. And do you have to confess something? When you said West Philadelphia, I definitely Fresh sang, I definitely yes. sang the Fresh Prince song in my head. Sorry. As did I. So, if you remember, we got to these men because a woman named Latoya Polly called police because she hadn't heard from her friend Ashley Baskerville. When police arrived to do their welfare check, they found the bodies of 21-year-old Ashley, her mother, 47-year-old Mary Tucker, and Ashley's stepdad, 55-year-old Persil. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. P-E-R-C-Y-E-L-L. Persil is how I'm going to say it. I'm sorry. Persil Tucker. Persil's head had been wrapped in saran wrap with a sock stuffed in his mouth and then duct taped. 
Mary's mouth had also been gagged and duct taped. She also had four cuts to her neck and chest, but ultimately died from suffocation. Similar to her stepdad's, Ashley had a sock stuffed in her mouth and a shopping bag was placed over her head and duct taped to her neck. Mary and Percy L. Tucker were known as nice church-going people. Mary worked at the church and Percy L. was a forklift operator. Ashley was in and out of trouble, which is how she met LaToya. According to LaToya, this is why she called police to check on Ashley. On January 6, LaToya, Ashley, Ricky, and Ray were all hanging out and they needed some money. So what do you do when you need money? You don't get a job. No. I'm going to tell you that right now. Step number one, don't get a job. So Ashley, who did not like her stepdad, said he had some money. They decided that they were going to fake a kidnapping plot. They were going to tie up Ashley, send some pictures to her parents for a ransom, and that was that. Easy peasy. You know? I mean, easiest get-rich-quick scheme. LaToya was like, yeah, that's a no for me, but the other three went to Ashley's home, and I'm not entirely sure how they're going to fake her kidnapping when she went with them to the house, but that's not the point. A few hours later, Ray and Ricky returned to LaToya's house, but Ashley wasn't with them. When asked where she was, they told her Ashley went bye-bye because she asked for too much of the money. That they got from her stepdad? Correct. Okay. Okay. Police asked LaToya to record her call with Ray and asked about what happened with Ashley. When she did, he replied, well, we don't have to worry about Ashley anymore. Seeing as that was basically a confession, police got right to work. They learned that Ray and Ricky had stolen Perseo's car and they found it the next day, January 7th, at a relative's home. One of their relatives? Yes. Okay. As SWAT entered, Ray surrendered and Ricky was found hiding behind the water heater. They were both arrested and charged with three counts of murder. During her autopsy, it was discovered that Ashley was wearing Catherine Harvey's wedding ring. The one that went missing. Yes. A connection between the two family massacres had been established when police weren't even looking for it. Pretty quickly after being read his rights, Ray Dandridge confessed to the murder of Ashley and her family, and as for a deal for a lesser sentence, he also confessed to the Harvey family murders. So, Ricky hears that Ray has spilled everything, so he too confessed. He told his account of the Harvey murders and dropped a bombshell that Ashley was their getaway driver. Oh, so she was there. She was there. She wasn't in the house. She was outside the house with them staking it out. But But yeah, she was an accomplice. By summer 2006, the men went to trial. Ray Dangdridge pled not guilty, which I thought about this because last time you're like, why do they do that? You confessed. Yeah. But now you're saying not guilty. I guess he's just rolling the dice. Maybe he'll get acquitted. Maybe he can pin it all, you know, on the other guy and Ashley and it wasn't me. I don't know. But before the trial was even over, he changed his plea to guilty in exchange for life in prison without parole. Ricky Gray, however, stuck to his not guilty plea. 
His attorney tried to get him leniency by bringing up his rough childhood that included physical and sexual abuse. However, after only 30 minutes of deliberation, Ricky Gray was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. So it was a death penalty case, and that's probably why Ray was like, I'm going to plead guilty if you just give me life in prison. Yeah, that makes sense to me. On January 18th, 2017, Ricky Gray was asked if he had any last words. He said, and I quote, nope. Perfect. And he was put to death by lethal injection. Ray Dandridge remains in prison, serving out his sentence for the murder of Ashley and her family and the Harvey family. <laughs> and that's the case. And she says, hard blinking. <laughs> that one's pretty crazy. Wild. The full circle by wedding ring, of all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that she was maybe the girlfriend of one of the guys, but I didn't see it in a lot of sources. But that would maybe explain why she had a wedding ring. But also, apparently, he didn't love her very much if he killed her Yeah, as well. Over money that they stole from her dad. Correct. And I don't know how much, but enough, I guess. I mean, they seem pretty content with bare minimum. Yeah. So it might be, I don't know, that's crazy to me, though. Do you have anything else to add? Any other comments? Nope, I'm I'm uh I'm good on this one. All right. If everybody could leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, and I will post pictures of everything on our Instagram at Murder in the Mountains, and come back next week for another episode. See ya. Bye.